0: What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop podcast, where we're on a mission to unlock human performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop. All right, this week's episode, Whoop, VP of Performance Science, our principal scientist, Kristen Holmes, is joined by Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris, a distinguished professor of neurology and psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. He is one of the leading researchers in the study of how psychedelics, such as psilocybin, LSD, and DMT, can change the human brain, and in doing so, be used to successfully treat various mental health challenges, such as major depression, anorexia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, and addiction. Kristen and Robin will discuss the etymology of psychedelics, his research on altered states and altered consciousness all about self-discovery and the potential to cure mental health recreational use of psychedelics which should be done in a controlled environment and with supervision the potential of psychedelics as a medicinal treatment mental health anxiety addiction and eating disorders what it means to biologically let go and the performance enhancing capabilities of psychedelics Reminder, if you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952, and we'll answer your questions on a future episode. Without further ado, here are Kristen Holmes and Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris.
1: First of all, Robin, I want to thank you for all the work that you have done and are doing in the space of psychedelic and consciousness research. This topic is likely pretty vague to a lot of our listeners. Um, they, might, you know, they might kind of heard about it, but I, I think it would be super helpful to start the conversation with just basically an overview of what falls into the category of psychedelics and, and what is the difference between you know, clinical use and recreational use.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Hopefully, that's a good place to start. And we're so pumped to have you and <laughs> to be able to uh, have this conversation with you today.
2: Yeah, it was. Thanks for having me on, Kristen, mm. and uh, this should be fun. Yeah. Yeah, so psychedelic, uh, it's good to start with the etymology of it. Where does the word come from? And then and, and we'll know what it means. So uh, coined in, in 1956 by a psychiatrist called Humphrey Osmond, uh, who uh, struck up a conversation with the famous author Aldous Huxley, of Brave New World and uh, The Doors of Perception, which was his essay on his uh, mescaline experience. Um, But uh, these two individuals wanted to come up with a better term to refer to this class of compounds that uh, included and includes um, drugs like LSD, most famously uh, mescaline, uh, psilocybin in psilocybe mushrooms, otherwise known as magic mushrooms. Yeah, DMT in ayahuasca, a uh, Amazonian tea. Uh, the DMT is the the psychedelic component in that, and some others. But anyway, they wanted to find a term that would speak to the key property, psychological property of what these drugs do, and they came up with psychedelic. It was Humphrey Osmond who who sort of won this battle of neologisms or new words uh, to uh, capture this category of compound. And psychedelic, it marries two Greek words, ancient Greek words for soul, psyche. And uh, delic uh, means to reveal or make manifest or to make visible. So soul revealing drugs is what the term refers to. And uh, and so yeah, I gave some examples of, of psychedelic drugs. Um, I would say that we can talk about classic psychedelics, which would include the compounds that I listed, and there's a certain way they work in the brain that can help us um, categorize these compounds. But I would say that, you know, that original reference to these being drugs that reveal aspects of the mind or soul if you want that are ordinarily not visible or accessible to conscious awareness remains a key property and these the the drugs i listed are drugs that i believe can do that um and i think that matters so if these are drugs that do that and that's a thing that can happen, (laughs) meaning there's aspects of our minds um, that are ordinarily not fully um, accessible to waking consciousness, then that means that there could be other states in which um, material of the mind That isn't ordinarily accessible can become more accessible. So these would be psychedelic states. So we talk about psychedelic drugs in a sense as the classic inducers of these psychedelic states in which there's a a broader awareness of the nature and content of the mind or soul, if you want.
1: Mm. You've done, you've written some really beautiful papers just trying to elucidate this concept of. Uh, altered state, altered consciousness, you know, what are maybe some of the highlights of things that you found, you know, what has been surprising as you've investigated kind of what, what is really possible in terms of understanding our consciousness and, and what does, what do some of these experience reveal about our consciousness and, and, and how does that help, perhaps help us, you know, in terms yeah. of our day to day?
2: yeah well it it, in a sense it's sort of self-discovery um and i suppose what we're discovering is that improvements in mental health can be carried by improvements in self-discovery understanding ourselves better and i guess a classic thing a kind of theme that you would find in certain schools of psychology like psychoanalysis uh would be that there are you know behaviors that that we do and ways of thinking that we fall into even ways of feeling um that happen and we don't really know why you know so we get depressed we fall into a depression or we've got this trigger specific anxiety when we encounter Know, x, y, or Z, we get overwhelmed by by fear and we just wanna escape and run away um or we fall into an addiction and we uh can't help it, and we get stuck in this um spiral down, and we don't really know why, and you know psychoanalytic psychology might say that maybe on some level we do know why we've just buried it we've repressed it and and so in that sense there are things of the mind that are really important that we bury that yet have shaped the way we behave and you know higher level have have shaped our lives we've gone down a a road a path uh, because of stuff in the past and we don't fully know why we did but we did and so what psychedelics seem to do and um, the honest answer is we're just scratching the surface in terms of answering why they do this why they're psyche revealing but they do seem to do it so when we apply drugs like the ones that i listed let's take psilocybin for example where there's most research on if we apply them as a mental health intervention, we do it with psychological support before, during, and after. We look after people throughout the process. And then they have the drug experience in a very controlled and supportive environment with music listening and usually two people, mental health professionals, looking over the person on the drug. And then when when we do that, Commonly people will go back to the origin of the of the paths, the sort of you know, the splitting of paths, points where something's happened or a series of things have happened that have led them down a certain path, and they realize they have this sometimes like an epiphany about things that have happened in their lives, and it can come with a overwhelming Um, amount of emotion Uh, not invariably they break down into tears Um, particularly people coming in as patients you know seeking care there's a backstory more often than not almost you know universally there's there's always a backstory but you know quite often there's a there's some themes some experiences that are obviously really important that were really pivotal in causing them to go down the path that they went down and so then you know having insight and realization about about this can bring a kind of clarity and there's something almost well, it depends, but I was going to say there's something sort of pleasing about the realisation. It's like, ah, oh, now it makes sense, you know? And and often there begins the healing. Yeah, it's not always as simple as that, and it can stir things yeah. up and, in a sense, open wounds that, that require further psychotherapy and processing. It's one of the complications of this... Treatment is what makes it so powerful and potentially beneficial is actually the same thing that could make the intervention harmful or dangerous. So it's about getting it right. It's about having the drug experience in the right kind of environment with the right kind of support where if you open a wound, so to speak, you're going to be helped towards healing uh, it might sort of set you back, but it's a it's a puff back or a step back to take you know more steps forward
1: yeah. yeah, you know it seems these are obviously really powerful compounds uh and they and you described a a kind of a clinical therapeutic uh setting i suppose, um where there's lots of support and um analysis of of and and kind of help in interpreting whatever is surfaced where have cuz i th- i think you know psychedelics are obviously used recreationally maybe just describe just from your experience and being in the space where maybe that goes right and where it goes wrong I, you know i don't want to place any judgment i'm just trying to i think help people understand that there are very there there they're, these are these compounds are used in two different ways and um one is probably a better path toward, I think, uh, you know, promoting kind of health and, and wellness and, um, and, and one might not be as ideal. I would just to love, love to hear your kind of thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, a lot of people think of psychedelics at least, uh, you know, historically times are changing and attitudes are changing in a positive direction. I think, um, but you know, a few years ago, and if people think of the '60s, perhaps in particular, you often think of LSD at, you uh, um, know, Woodstock or um, some, you know, festivals or, and or hate Ashbury and people tripping hard on LSD and getting into trouble and having psychotic breaks. So. It, Doing self-injurious things, or um, yeah, uh, and so that's a side of this that, um, uh, although it, it may have been inflated as part of the drugs war, it's not without validity. Like it's not uh, untrue that that things can go this way. So when people take uh, psychedelics, perhaps in particular, in a um, in a sort of recreational way um they often have a rude awakening like it's not the if they're new to this it's not the fun that they were anticipating that they might get from you know having some alcohol for example you know rather than the kind of escapist state that you can get into with some alcohol it's more like a a frightening confrontation with with life and death and and your past and yeah, so it's, it's not kids' play. It's not party stuff, and uh, that's where people can get into trouble. Um, so that's why when we do the research and we think of the clinical applications, it's a particular kind of application. It's quite different from you know a big dose of LSD at Burning Man that can go awry um, to you know, some deep soul searching with mental health professionals who are, you know, holding your hand through this experience.
1: You mentioned just attitudes are changing. And uh, there's no question, I think, you know, places like Imperial College of London and John Hopkins and UCSF, like, are doing just this incredible research. And and I think that has, uh, I think, cemented uh, the use of these compounds as a potential pathway to kind of therapeutic wellness is, you know, has is, is been, has, is, is been incredible. One of the documentary that you were on recently, uh, Michael Pollan's Netflix, uh, mm-hmm. documentary on, uh, how to change your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, you were obviously featured, uh, in that documentary, like, how do you feel like, uh, that. Show in particular, maybe is kind of helping people understand this space mm. a bit better and understanding the potential um, and the in the need for more research and funding. Uh, maybe just a quick comment on just how attitudes are changing and how how mm. how things have shifted.
2: Yeah, well, they certainly are. Michael uh, Pollan wrote "How to Change Your Mind" in twenty eighteen, I think it was, and you know we talk about a Michael Pollen effect that it was a, <laughs> it was like you know some kind of uh rocket fuel to the field and and it's just really taken off since then i just a few weeks ago we had the big um psychedelic science conference in denver with 12,000 people there um you know rivers of people walking wow. from uh room to room it was quite something wow. um Uh, Yeah. So this is mainstreaming and and that show on Netflix. um, Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty prime time now. I think, uh, you know, with all that comes a responsibility that we get it right, that we don't dumb it down to a point where people miss the message and think, for example, they just need to get their hands on a bunch of magic mushrooms, you know, eat them in their bedroom and they're going to, be healed of whatever serious psychiatric disorder they might have it just it's not that simple and so thankfully the way it's being communicated by the likes of Michael and and others we're we're pretty true people you know generally speaking we're pretty true to the intricacies and the subtleties and we try and communicate that so um yeah, I would say that it, the public education right now is pretty good. There's also a critical and sceptical uh, commentary that's coming in more and more, which is really healthy. When a space grows like this, it will complexify naturally. And uh, and so it's important to hear the other angles. And um, there certainly are other angles, you know, no intervention is risk-free and uh psychedelic therapy psychedelics certainly have their own risks but psychedelic therapy too has its own risks and limitations and so people are hearing about those as well which i think is good and i just think for you know audiences the general public to um be willing to listen and take in a A diversity of messages and not necessarily be swept up with any one particular message is quite important to be able to kind of hold it all and and consider it all is is healthy um and i i think generally speaking that's where we find ourselves it is still an upward trajectory in terms of public interest and optimism about this so let's let's see where that goes but it it's uh it's exciting times yeah what have you found to be most promising
1: in the research so far? You know, what has made you the most excited about the potential?
2: Yeah, well, it's a few things that speaks to how psychedelic therapy could be uh, superior, potentially superior to current treatments. And and that's mm-hmm. that's where we find ourselves right now in terms of mental health is that current treatments aren't really good enough. And they haven't really improved or advanced for several decades. Um, And so a breakthrough is needed. And unlike other domains of health, where if you have a problem, like you contract a virus, there's typically a treatment um, and we can focus in, find the target and and solve the problem. Um, We're pretty good at that in other domains of medicine, but not so mental health. So... There's major room for improvement. And the exciting thing about psychedelic therapy is that maybe it hits the target, you know? And and what's the evidence for that? Well, there's a number of trials that have been done now in major psychiatric disorders like depression, anxiety, addictions. We're going to see eating disorders uh, published on soon, chronic pain disorders, addiction disorders, if I didn't mention that. I mean, uh, the largest swath of, of mental illness is we're seeing signal with psychedelic therapy, not all of it, but a lot of it and maybe the principal component of it, like maybe the main signature of mental illness is targeted by psychedelic therapy. And uh, so that's exciting. That suggests what we call a transdiagnostic potential, that the same intervention mm-hmm. could treat a lot trans across Across uh, diagnoses, across mental mm-hmm. illness, the same intervention seeming to work. And and how does it work? Well, you know the evidence suggests that it works rapidly. Um, so we see improvements in many people uh, days and weeks after the intervention. Mm-hmm. So that rapid action is important because, mm-hmm. say, in depression, antidepressant drugs typically have a long. Run in period before they start to be effective same with psychotherapy it takes time uh, for Mm -hmm. it to begin to really change people um and then we also have often just few interventions like one or two doses and we get a long window of response as well Mm -hmm. so months out and in some people they find health and and stay there so they stay in remission Mm -hmm. and uh um so that rapid action, the enduring action, this transdiagnostic action—an uh, action with few interventions—so that's good for side effects because you know you're only having to, having to take the actual drug once or twice in in, in probably most cases, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's see. Well, those are some pretty important things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, And yeah i guess that was kind of surprising i mean i came into this as a basic scientist uh Mm -hmm. asking questions just inquiring of it so i didn't come in as an advocate thinking um psychedelics are gonna you know save the world and and revolutionize mental health care and and so i've kind of learned on on the job uh, about their promise and and if I think about because it. As any that, good
1: scientist would.
2: <laughs> right. They should, yeah. Yeah. And so that's been that's been a major learning for me, is like, oh wow, this really can work.
1: I'm interested, or I'm wondering if you have looked at uh markers of sleep, um, any kind of physiological markers like heart variability and and heart rate, and kind of have you know, do you have a baseline and kind of after treatment, do you see changes? I guess I wonder, you know, I've seen in our data and we've done just a couple small case studies of veterans who have gone through uh, therapeutic uh, psilocybin treatment and have seen huge changes in sleep architecture and, um, and autonomic nervous system functioning. Mm-hmm. And it seems to, to, you know, there's a huge boost after the, the treatment, you know, deeper stages of REM deeper stages of, slowly of sleep, or, or they're spending more time in these stages of sleep. We see huge boosts in heart rate variability, big decreases in resting heart rate. And this, you know, a month after treatment, it seems to, it, it levels out, but it's definitely much higher than than baseline. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm wondering to what extent, you know, does, do these treatments potentially help improve markers of, of sleep and, and kind of autonomic functioning and, and that is kind of what's happening mechanistically in terms of um, enabling a lot of these improvements.
2: Yeah, well, um, I'd love I'd love to say that we we've, we've got more data on that. We we don't have a ton, you know. We we've got a lot on the psychometrics, so the psychological measures before and after where we see the improvements. Right, right. just the qualitative. And- yeah, qualitative, quantitative as well, albeit subjective. So rating scales, you know, mm-hmm. either done by okay. the patient yep. or by, done by a clinician. Let's say, you know, in anorexia, right. it's done by a clinician. They do an interview and then they score it and it's quantitative. Mm-hmm. It's a number, but it right, is right, of
1: course. Yeah. through
2: their eyes, you know, so there's a degree, right. degree of subjectivity. So we yep. do all that and um, and we do brain imaging. But what we're missing is, in a sense, what you've captured with uh whoop and uh, i think that's a really exciting um fertile place to go into um Mm. you know with more and more people wearing wearables and and collecting these data in that sort of passive Mm. pretty easy way i think it's such valuable data yeah um and so it it makes a lot of sense uh it adds some you know biological objectivity to the improvements Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that fascinating complexity around the causality like are they mm-hmm. doing so well now because they're sleeping so well or are they sleeping so well mm-hmm. because they're doing so well now and it's right a, exactly it's a sort of complex mix i think it's sort it's of, a bit of both which mm-hmm. is you know bi-directional probably yeah bi-directional absolutely and, and but it's fabulous and we are seeing it in in other outcomes, like uh, lifestyle, self-reporting of lifestyle changes, we see some um, mm-hmm. positive changes, people drinking less, um, doing more exercise, eating better. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and I think that's part of the secret for staying well as well. I mean, it's it sort of sounds pretty obvious, but, you know, taking the psychedelic, even with psychedelic therapy, isn't going to, cure you forever unconditionally Mm -hmm. but it might you know lower a hurdle that that you Mm -hmm. can surmount and then with the right Mm -hmm. intention you can improve your lifestyle make positive changes improve your resilience in certain ways to try and remain well and so you know yeah. if you're tracking outcomes longitudinally over a long time mm-hmm. you can you can start to see that and perhaps those who mm-hmm. are doing things to their um behavior behavioral changes lifestyle changes um that they report you know through whoop for example, and then you see that um coming through in their physiological data then mm-hmm. you can you can feel good that you know they they're helping to to cultivate these positive changes and and that really matters you know um, yeah yeah
1: and just to like what you I think the yeah just your lifestyle kind of going into the inter- intervention you know how often are you practicing things like meditation and mindfulness you know what how much are you moving what kind of activities are you taking part in um you know obviously what is your sleep? behavior look like beforehand? You know, how stable is your sleep-wake time? Some of these things that we know are incredibly powerful at um, fostering resilience, human resilience, both okay. psychological and physiological. So yeah, I, th- I found um, this, and this is why I reached out to you a few years ago, because I, I saw the, you know, seeing these data come through and, and getting all this kind of anecdata from folks, and I was just like, this is wild. I mean, the, the increases that we saw is like an 18% decrease in sleep debt which is basically how much sleep you need versus what you typically get. Mm. Um, We call this uh, your sleep need. And basically the delta is your sleep debt. So we saw huge improvements here. Sleep consistency is another marker that I think is an amazing proxy for kind of overall mental and physiological resilience. We see it bubble up in all of the research that we do. So basically the degree to which someone has a stable sleep-wake time. And this obviously ties to kind of circadian rhythms and circadian synchronization. And we see that um, this is one of the hardest markers to it's one of the worst metrics on the Woo platform in terms of at population levels, people are, have very not great sleep, wake, stable sleep, wake time. It's very unstable, uh, very inconsistent, but we see that the uh, sleep consistency relate to psychological functioning or, or strongly associated with psychological functioning in uh, every study that we've done. It bubbles up to the surface. So we saw 9% increases in sleep consistency for, for one group in this little case study and 6% and another and some interesting relationships between kind of integration strategies Mm -hmm. for the, the folks who had improvements versus the folks who didn't. So I think there's a lot here um, in, in terms of being able to kind of incorporate some of these data to just better understand, you know, just from a behavioral standpoint, kind of what's contributing to big improvements versus medium improvements versus not so much improvement um so i think there's a lot of potential
2: yeah yeah that's exciting yeah and you know there's a there's a gonna be if there's not already a a compelling evidence base to this that it it is uh it is really improving people yeah of course there are intricacies and uh there are there it's not a done deal for everyone but uh Mm. Of course. Nothing yeah. ever is yeah, so yeah
1: yeah and what, what's your take so the, the group that went through this uh, whose data we ended up looking at they were very resistant to kind of typical treatments so they had you know tried uh, all sorts of antidepressant medication and um, you know lots of cognitive behavioral therapy um, what I, I guess when would you recommend based on just the research that you've done and your knowledge of the space, when when would it be a good time to explore you know this kind of
2: alternative type of treatment yeah well in a sense it's easier to answer when is it not a good time because mm. uh, it seems to it seems you know on average to work well and so you know across the depression trials we're getting uh, 70% response rates now which is quite an improvement up on wow. say, you know ssri antidepressants um what's and, the response rate sorry for um about, if yeah, you could just go through depression yeah yeah, 50%, taking- yeah wow. hovering around that with ssri is a course of, of okay. antidepressant and then it's complicated because you also get spontaneous remission meaning um, on average If you take someone who's depressed, solidly depressed, the direction of change would be towards less severe symptom severity. It's like a statistical phenomenon, almost. You call it regression to the mean, that it's just not going to be Mm -hmm. as bad as where you capture them at at baseline. So, yeah, I mean, uh, placebo has a very big effect as well. So you have a combination of spontaneous remission that just happens, placebo response, and then antidepressants on top of that will get about half of people better at the end of a course, and that's just not it's not good enough really. What other treatments yeah. of uh illness only work in half of cases is pretty yeah. pretty poor but it's also a reminder that seventeen percent means thirty percent aren't responding, and what's going on there and There are a few clues in data and in sort of anecdote and intuition i would say that uh, capturing people at a time of serious life stress can can be problematic um mm-hmm. as in there's just there's no firm fon- foundations under people's feet at this time i'm not sure if it's wise then to come in with a big dose of a of a psychedelic another one would be if you're sort of in a it's sort of relatedly in a period of intense agitation and instability. I mean, when, when someone is depressed and anxious, then you can't say that they're stable as such. But it's really where there's um, intense, acute stress going on. I, I get a sense that that's not a good indicator. Um But there's also a very, very strong relational component around trust. So there you start to see this as, in a sense, not so much where someone is within themselves, but where they are when they're with the person or people who are looking after them for this experience. And so if there's a scenario where someone, yes, is in a very difficult place right now, yet they are with um, some supportive people who they just fully trust and really feel comfortable with, then then they might be ready. And uh, we do see in the data that trust is a very strong predictor of the kind of experience someone has under the drug and then how they do afterwards as well. So it's a complex well it's sort of as complex as you want it to be it, there there may be some very strong components that are predictive of of response like trust um and then within the individual it's a kind of readiness you know and then that you can see how that would interact with trust if they're trusting they're mm-hmm. going to become ready oh now i'm ready i'm ready to what to and the answer there is to to let go with an inquiring mind uh into this experience and it knowing it could be hard but letting go to that trusting the process and and that's that seems to be a key sort of mindset factor going in.
1: What does like letting go like biologically mean? <laughs>
2: Well, that's a fab question. It's one that I'm hoping to address in a study that we've just started recruiting for. I mean, the honest answer is we don't know yet because we haven't mapped it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone has. But we do have some mm-hmm. hypotheses and they'd be around, you know, there's a fascinating thing about the mind, which is that it can push back on nature if you want. Like it has its own causality, mm-hmm. in my view, um, uh when we're, we're not just at the mercy of some like one way you know driving um causality from body for example um you can have top down control and so the intuition is that that top down control is actually in a sense can be a problem in the psychedelic experience because the sort of natural arrow of Of effect is one of breaking Mm -hmm. things down I I call it this entropic brain effect things Mm -hmm. disintegrate structure in the brain not so much literally but organizational structure in the activity breaks down um and uh, that's scary as hell you know it feels like you're losing your mind it feels like you're dying and you want to rage against that and um, you do that with the top-down controls. I don't want this. Make it stop. You know, um, and that with that often comes distress because it's hard to make it stop, um, and a distraction in a sense from what might happen if you were to let go to all this strangeness and unfamiliarity, and just trust the process with ideally someone at your side saying, you know, your body's okay, you can let go. um, And then go into the experience and and see what you can find out. So I didn't answer your question, but, uh, you know, there are certain circuitry and processes in the brain that we would associate with top-down control. You know, I guess the classic one people would think of is engaging the prefrontal cortex a high level aspect of the brain projecting down hierarchically, projecting down into emotional circuitry uh, to try and control emotional circuitry. And so that we can map with brain imaging, where we would see a directed information flow from the top of a hierarchy to a lower aspect of of an organizational hierarchy, so frontal cortex down to say limbic uh, brain uh, we can map that Um, and that would be what would be happening if someone's fighting a trip and so if they're letting go to the trip we would predict less of that Uh, what we do see with psychedelics in the data is that the drug naturally um, flips the direction of information flow from a predominant top-down in normal waking consciousness. There's a lot of top-down in normal waking consciousness to more bottom-up flow. And what I mean by that is from a low end of a, of a functional hierarchy upwards. Um, Yeah. From more rudimentary systems and structures to more high level systems and structures. So that's the general flow. And, in a sense, letting go would look like that would be letting go to that basic uh, flip in the directionality of the information flow towards more of a bottom up information flow.
1: What would you say for folks who, you know, are traveling? Okay, you know, feel feel good mentally, physically, emotionally? um, What place does kind of, you know, psychedelics have and for folks like that? Is yep. there a kind of a, a performance enhancing uh, possibility?
2: Yeah, I think there is. Um, and we see that in the data again. So, you know, if we recruit healthy uh, samples of healthy individuals whose well-being is sort of bumping around the average uh, or just a little bit below, then we do see big changes in the group average towards improvements in well-being. So that's, you know, positive psychology is is what it's sometimes called. Um, uh, I you know, Themes like flourishing, uh, not just being sort of well enough, ordinarily neurotic, someone like Freud might call it, but like actually saying, I feel good. I feel well, you know, I'm loving life and uh, loving friends and family and you know that that positive aspect is something that we can see improvements in we do see improvements in in the data and so that can come with with a similar model as we do in the um clinical trials meaning big doses and the psychological support but there's also this open question as to whether you can get it with lower doses and there's a, a lot of buzz around microdosing um uh, my sense is that even though the evidence isn't super compelling right now, there probably is signal in those mostly anecdotes. There's there's a bit of data coming through that is more promising now. But uh, my view is that even with microdosing, you still need to twin it with something, uh, some kind of practice um, or some kind of self-development de- like psychotherapeutic work. If you twin twin it with that, you're gonna get the most out of it, is my sense. But that's a hypothesis.
1: Very cool. Yeah, we wonder. Like, I guess, have you seen when you say just improvements, kind of relative to the group, improvements mainly in just perceptions of kind of emotional well-being and psychological well-being, psychological functioning, any markers of kind of performance, like from a standpoint of like better exercise capacity or improved endurance? You know, I, I guess I'm just wondering how it might impact kind of those type of performance variables or if that's even been studied.
2: Uh, it's a great question to address in a study. And uh, um, <laughs> I can't think of one that's really nailed it yet. I mean, I with uh, some... Friends and associates and colleagues, uh, there's there's an idea of doing something with microdosing and, and training to improve yeah. uh, performance. And, and that principle might apply across a broad range of domains, you know, sport, um, maybe, um, you know, it applies across domains of... It's really a learning principle, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so... If you're improving performance physically, that might entail some kind of, um, well, holistic action where maybe you're getting more into your body, more appreciative of your body and your body's health. And so taking Mm -hmm. care of your body, but also perhaps getting out of your head. Let's take a sport like golf, very heady game, easy to get stuck in one's head and 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 not be able to just swing that club and and hit the ball nice and true, so there's interesting ideas around that. You know, Um would love to get a study going on that.
1: Yeah, okay. I feel like there's going to be a collaboration here in the very <laughs> near future. <laughs> yeah. I know we definitely. Yeah, I mean, I just think sleep sleep wake time. Like, I yeah, I just feel like there's. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder if, if that is is kind of part of the entry point here in terms of yeah, if if there is improvements in performance and just kind of what you're seeing or what you're hearing from, from folks kind of who are microdosing and seeing maybe elevations and improvements in performance. I'm wondering if they're also seeing in parallel improvements in sleep um, and more restorative sleep, right? Because that in theory would increase capacity, uh, yeah. you know, to increase your ability to put effort toward um whatever activity it is that you're doing um
2: yeah. so yeah it's curious how that all ties yeah together. sort of a vir- virtuous cycle isn't mm. it more well, than a vicious or vicious virtuous yeah. so. virtuous circle yeah
1: so in what are and just maybe just educate us quickly on what is what is legal in the u.s mm. are our are, are psychedelics legal in the u.s like what you know, for folks who are microdosing, like how are they getting those substances? Like what, you know, how, what's the where are the laws right now?
2: Yeah, I think microdosing um is is illegal uh if it's psilocybin, uh, LSD, um some form of ayahuasca or even vaping DMT. That's mm-hmm. uh that's not legal uh anywhere, to my knowledge. Now um under um the Oregon 109 initiative a ballot initiative uh the state of Oregon has legalized adult supervised psilocybin experiences mm-hmm. um and that means that um a broad cross section of people can legally have psilocybin experiences at various doses and often it is it is the mushrooms um mm-hmm. i think mostly it will be mushroom material um and uh, they can take lower doses, in in which case the rules are that those experiences would be supervised for a period. It's not long, actually. It's it's just something like an hour and a half. Um, but they do have to come in somewhere, a service center, a licensed service center, with licensed providers who will supervise them when they ingest the the mushrooms and look after them for a period and they've got to remain there. So there are rules. And, and then if it's higher doses, they would, the, the, it's a longer duration of supervision that they have to be in for. None of this is covered by any insurance at the moment. So it's all private, um, right. Access. Uh, and it looks like it's probably not going to be that cheap. So that's prohibitive of many people. Mm. um, and so it's a tricky time, and you have similar initiatives opening up some legal access in Colorado. Um, There's a fascinating ballot initiative in California to try and route um, state funds to psychedelic research, and that research would go alongside access. So in my mind, I envision like research clinics providing access, but also honouring the need to continue to collect data on this um so we'll see if that is successful treat california um is the name uh what else is there uh, you know people are knocking on the door and then you have mdma therapy that's gone through two phase three trials this is the MAPS mm-hmm. right uh, clinical mm-hmm. trial research and that's works completed and been i think it's ready to be submitted to the FDA if it hasn't been already. So the medicine regulators who will then take, I don't know, six, 12 months to decide whether they would give a license uh, to the providers um, to provide, um, you know, medical medically indicated MDMA therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. So that would be a federal thing. Um, mm-hmm. across the US, people would legally be able to access MDMA therapy, but only if they're suffering from PTSD. Okay. So it's a complicated time. Psilocybin is probably, I don't know, four years off from uh, federally approved um, uh, psilocybin therapy for depression. Um, so these state initiatives are sort of jumping the gun a little bit. Um, and bringing Mm. in access in specific states. So interesting time. Otherwise, people have to travel for legal access, you know, to areas Mm. where um, it is allowed. Uh, I think places like Costa Rica and Jamaica, um, Mexico for certain substances. So, yeah, Mm. it's a complicated time. And it's, it's somewhat problematic because... You have all this demand and all this promise and yet mm-hmm. no, well, very little opportunity. <laughs> for legal access. So it's, it's, it's actually quite yeah. tragic in some cases because people know they can benefit and they can't get the treatment. Yeah, yeah that is tragic.
1: So we always ask our, uh, our podcast guests a couple of questions. Um, the first question, what are you obsessing over right now?
2: <laughs> oh god. <laughs> uh, well, okay,
1: so wow. I'm like love people's reaction. It's just like, oh my god. <laughs> it's an <most> amazing question. <laughs> Cuz maybe what first came to your mind is like, hmm, I actually can't say what that is right uh, no, now. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited Mm. about our first big study at UCSF, which is this deep dive into psychedelic substates. Amazing. Um, So I think about that quite a lot and how, you know, and so certain themes that I brought up in this conversation are probably coming in because of obsessing a little bit about
1: about that
2: study. And the high level is a kind of decoding approach to the psychedelic experience. How can we, you know, decode the content and quality of Someone's trip from mm. what's happening in their body and brain, so that would be cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good luck with that. No, good. <laughs> <laughs> really complicated. Yeah, I, I think. I think. You know, it's I keep it simple, and uh, even though the, uh, yeah. the challenge is immense, it. totally. If we keep it simple, we could do it, and we could predict certain yeah. aspects of the experience. So. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, all right. Another question. Uh, what do you believe are the three biggest benefits to psychedelics? And I know we kind of touched on them, but this is like for our sound bites.
2: <laughs> mm. Yes. Self development. Understand, know, know mm. thyself. Yeah. That'd be number one. Uh, and we need two more. Scientific yeah, no, discovery. <laughs> <laughs> no reality, know the universe. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and the third one has to be, uh, yeah, we can go to health because it's different. Yeah. It's a little bit different to self discovery. So, yeah, heal thyself, keep thyself well.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love
2: that. It's perfect.
1: Know thyself, heal thyself, and scientific discovery. Mm. I feel like that's a, really solid top three. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Robin, it's been so lovely to reconnect with you um, and to, to talk with you today. Uh, yeah, just as I said in the beginning, i like just really grateful for um, kind of this hero's work that you're doing. And um, I know you stand on the shoulders of, of lots of other folks. But um, yeah, I mean, what you've done is uh, just absolutely unbelievable and super excited for this. Uh, new research that you're about to embark on mm, Can't
2: wait thanks, to see
1: the results. Yeah. Uh, um, so where, where can folks find you, Robin? Where yeah.
2: Do you have, um... I'm working towards launching a, a new website for my, my lab, uh, which I'll be launching oh, later good. this year, which is exciting for me. That's a recent development. Um, it's not there yet. So I'd say just follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, until there's something okay. else that you can do with your time, um, yeah, um, and I can do with my time. Are you on Instagram? Yeah, but not really. Just uh, uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't go into it that. Uh, I just go to Twitter. So it's only if I'm yeah. taken there by something. Uh, it's Just bandwidth-wise, okay, I it. can only I can only do one platform. I feel <laughs> so. I do. Twitter. Yeah,
1: I know. I know. It's a real. It's a challenge to keep mm. up with it all mm. when, um, okay. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank and, you, Kristen. Um, yeah, it's yeah, been fun. Hopefully we can connect too on just some potential collaborations. Yeah. I just feel like we've got a really amazing data set and awesome. uh, we've never really asked some of these questions around psychedelics. So it could well, be- Well,
2: let's do a call on that and, and get stuck in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, uh, yeah. Yeah pretty low lift, you know, just really analysis.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it. Okay.
1: I'll be reaching out. Oh, <laughs> good. I'm looking
2: forward. Uh, thank you. All right. Awesome.
0: Thanks. Thank you to Robin for sharing his insight on psychedelics and recovery. If you enjoyed this episode of the whoop podcast, please leave a rating or review. Check us out on social at whoop at will Ahmed. If you have a question, wants see answered on the podcast? Email us podcast at whoop. Call us 508-443-4952. Thinking about joining the Whoop? You can visit our website and try Whoop for free. That's a free trial membership at whoop.com and new members can use the code WILL to get a $60 credit on Whoop accessories. That's all folks. Wishing you a great week. Stay healthy and stay in the green.